Let us pray. O Lord Jehovah, we humble ourselves before thy precious word and ask that you would teach us from its pages and its words that by the power of the Holy Spirit you would convict us according to what is written therein that we might keep all thy ways, that we might keep thy commandments, that we might be diligent about it and that we would do no iniquity. Let us learn from these words this morning. We ask in Jesus' name and for his honor and glory. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. And let's take the next two verses the Lord has brought for us this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. Amen and amen. Amen. Let love be without dissimulation. Consider the logical development of the apostle as he comes to into this 12th chapter. He gave us a mandate for Christian living in those first two verses that many of us have memorized over the years and should be memorized by many. There's the mandate in general of how we ought to live in verses 1 and 2. Then he went after the humility of church officers in verses 3 through 8, because that is a temptation by church officers to be puffed up in pride. That is why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul told Timothy not to ordain a novice, lest being lifted up in pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil, which was the devil's condemnation of living in pride and wanting to be like the Most High. So he takes care of the officers of the church and he teaches humility in verses 3 through 8. And it sets a precedent for every other church member by an argument from the greater to the lesser. If those that are gifted in the church are exhorted not to think of themselves more highly than they ought, then certainly those that are not as gifted in the church should not be thinking too highly of themselves. And then he comes to verses 9 and 10, and in both verses we have the greatest grace of the Christian religion mentioned, and that's love. Love is the greatest grace, it's the greatest measure, it's the greatest duty, the greatest commandment, it's the first commandment, it's the royal law, it's the perfect law, it's the bond of perfectness, and we could go on and on, and we've done that before in a series of messages entitled, Love is the Greatest. The words here are not indicative or instructional, they are a imperative and commanding. Let love be without dissimulation. This is something you are supposed to do. Love is a choice. The direction of love is a choice. The level of love that you have is a choice. The action of love that flows from that choice is part of love. And it's a commandment for us to love and without dissimulation. To dissimulate is to conceal or to disguise something under a feigned appearance. It's basically hypocrisy. Don't let your love have any hypocrisy. Let love be without dissimulation. Let me say it again. To dissimulate means 
to conceal or disguise under a feigned appearance. Or to dissemble, and to dissemble means to alter or disguise the semblance of something, to give a false or feigned semblance, or to cloak or disguise by a feigned appearance. We don't want any hypocrisy in our love. And the Bible is very clear about that. Look at 2 Corinthians 6.6. 6. 2 Corinthians 6.6 6 and how it uses another word rather than dissimulate or dissimulation to help us understand. 2 Corinthians 6, 6. By pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love, unfeigned. If there is unfeigned love, then that means there is feigned love. Here it is for love to be unfeigned. Feigned means to fake something. Feigned means to pretend something. And so there's pretend love, there's fake love, there's professed love, there's stated love, there's word, there's love in word, and there's love in speech, which is not real love. The Lord doesn't care what you say about loving the brethren. The Lord doesn't care what you say about loving Him, because He condemns drawing nigh to Him with your lips, but your heart being far from Him. That is feigned love. That is dissimulated love. And we want to have love without dissimulation. Look at 1 John chapter 3 that used some of those words that I just used. 1 John and the third chapter. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. It is love that is done in true action that the Lord commends, commands, and expects and receives. But it's love in word and speech that is unacceptable. He doesn't care what we say in public. He doesn't care what we say in private. He doesn't care what we would say in answer to a questionnaire of whether we love or not. He wants it in action. He wants it in deeds. He wants it in truth. And true love is always in deeds. It is not just words. Because words help no one except there be a time where part of your action would be stating your love for another as even the Apostle and the Lord Jesus Christ would do from time to time. We dissimulate when our daily actions do not match our professions or our Sunday pretensions. You know, we're here in the house of God right now, and we've already had given to us Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 10, where the just seek the soul of the upright. And we want to seek men's souls today, and we want to do it in deed, and we want to do it in truth. We don't want to do it just in word. Now we need to ask ourselves, what love is under consideration in this phrase? We have five phrases that we want to deal with in this particular message. Let love be without dissimulation is a clause, sentence by itself. Abhor that which is evil is number two. Cleave to that which is good is number three. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love is a fourth. And in honor preferring one another is a fifth. And we can see plainly that three of those involve love. And there's two in between about living a separated life. Let love be without dissimulation. Well, it's not described. It doesn't say, let your love of the brethren be without dissimulation. Let your love of God be without dissimulation. So it encompasses all the love that we're supposed to have for every object. And we're going to get some particulars in the verses that follow. We're supposed to love God. That's a given of the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the religion of the Bible is to love God. 
We're supposed to love the Lord Jesus Christ. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. We're supposed to love good and hate evil. We're supposed to love Scripture. Oh, how love I thy law. Psalm 119 tells us we're supposed to love the ministers of God. We're supposed to love our neighbors. And we're supposed to love our enemies along with the brethren that are mentioned right here in context. Love is a very important part of our religion. And that love had better not be feigned. That love had better not be hypocritical. That love should not be pretended. That love should not be in word. That love should be in performance. We want to perform our love. Let love be without dissimulation. Do not say that you love the things that you should love and not live up to that high calling. The love toward God, which is supposed to be all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, is a love that shouldn't be feigned. We feign it when we come in here and we sing songs such as, Oh, how I love Jesus. And then we don't love Jesus with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and our lives. Because Jesus said, if a man love me, he'll keep my commandments. And so if we go out of here and we don't keep his commandments, no matter how loud or beautifully we sing on the Lord's Day, we're dissimulating. We're feigning. We're pretending. We're hypocrites. Lord, save us from such a terrible crime. Look at Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8 which is a quotation by the Lord Jesus Christ from Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah, we want Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8. It is from Isaiah 29. Jesus said in verse 7, Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah, or Isaiah, prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. A lot of lip service, as we tend to call it. When we say the words, we make the professions, we answer the questions, we say, yes, I love the Lord. We sing the songs, I love the Lord. But we don't perform, because this is what the Lord wants. Their heart is far from me. It want, we, the Lord wants a passion on the inside and performance on the outside. Right. He wants a heart attached to the love, and He wants your love to grow feet that will carry you to do the things that you ought to. It is not singing about it, talking about it, reading about it, memorizing about it. That's all in word and speech. The Lord wants it in heart and action. And He doesn't want any pretension to it or any hypocrisy in it. Lord, help us to love you the way that we should. The Bible says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love them both. No man can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold the one and despise the other. Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 24. You can't love them both. You can't love this world and love the God of heaven. That's dissimulation. That's hypocrisy. Because you can't love them both. And if you're loving the world, you cannot love the enemy of the world, which is the Lord our God. The Bible says to keep yourselves in the love of God in Jude 1, 21. It is something that you choose to do, and that is to love God. 
And you need to keep yourself there because your flesh doesn't want to love God. The world doesn't love God. The devil doesn't love God. So you have many enemies against you, but you can keep yourselves in the love of God by coming back to His Word, by going to Him in prayer, by rooting out of your heart and your life those things that detract away from your love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But let that love be without dissimulation. Don't let there be any hypocrisy or insincerity attached to it. Because those are two large faults that must be rejected in every kind of love we have. When we say that we love, or when we read in the Bible that we're supposed to love, we want to follow up on that with sincere, genuine, heartfelt, heart-producing actions of love. Not just the words toward that end. What's the source of real love? Real love is looking at the examples of God's love for us and the Lord Jesus Christ's love for us. The Lord Jesus Christ's love for His church should both illustrate His love and provoke us to it. The Apostle Paul said, For the love of Christ constraineth me. It put Paul into one goal for his life, and that was to return and show to others what Jesus Christ had done for him. This is the real source of love. To reach this high standard of love where there's no pretension. Where it's not just words. It's performance from the heart. And it's actions that count. And it's sacrificial actions. Where does that come from? But from a work of grace in you by the Lord Himself and by the example that He's given to us. Look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you sincerely love God, you're going to love those that are the children of God. Because they go together. And the Bible makes that explicitly clear in 1 John chapters 4 and 5. The last two verses of 1 John. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him that he who loveth God love his brother also. Love for God and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's sincere, will result in love for those that are His. Because they're attached. They're all of one. They're His brother. And it's the family of God. How can you love God, the Father of His family, and hate His family, or neglect His family, or ignore His family? You must love them together. And it doesn't matter how... How pious a person sounds when they say, I love him. It doesn't matter how eloquent they might say it or write it about how much they love God. It comes down to the fact you have to love the brethren to show that you love God because they're all together of one. And this is how we measure ourselves to make sure that there's no dissimulation in our love. Where do we get this love? It's a It's a fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the greatest grace of a Christian's life. It's the, it's the purest evidence of eternal life is to love others. The devils have faith, but the devils don't have love. And the love that ought to pervade our lives is proof. You can assure your hearts before Him if you read 1 John 4 last night because God is love and those that walk in love and show love by performance prove that they're gods because they have something that the flesh does not have. Because by nature we are hateful and hating one another, living in malice and envy. Even the Apostle Paul would say that. Love is a wonderful thing in the Word of God. And while we could spend too much time here making a full review of love, we're not going to. But it sure would be a good study for every saint that's serious about the most important things of Scripture. Because love 
is most important. It's the bond of perfectness. Love is a choice. And the Word of God tells us everything that we ought to set our affections on. It says set your affections on things above. It tells husbands to love their wives. It tells wives to love their children. It tells us to love the brethren and the things that I've already mentioned. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and see how the apostle described making a choice to love, to reach beyond a dissimulated love, to reach beyond a feigned love, a sincere love, a real love, one of performance, one of action. You need to get your heart involved in it. You need to get compassion in your heart. You need to have passion for the objects that the Bible teaches us, none of which are listed in Romans 12, 9, the first clause, because it's just left open. With all the love that is described and commanded in the Bible, we're to do it without any hypocrisy. And so we want to examine ourselves today. Do I have real love? Have I chosen to love the objects God's told me to love? And does that love flow out of a heart that has compassion and passion and bowels for its objects? And does it result in action? Because that's what we need. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 The apostle had a severe problem with the church at Corinth because they did not love him like they should have in spite of him being their father in the faith and having been responsible for their initial conversion. But in 2 Corinthians 6, look at verse 11. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. You can enlarge your heart and you can pray for God to enlarge your heart. To enlarge your heart is to expand it, to increase its affection from the heart outward. Not the mouth. Oh, the apostle had his mouth open, but the apostle's mouth was open because his heart was already enlarged. When your heart, when your heart is enlarged, then your mouth can say that you love someone and then you're going to perform it because you have a heart behind it. It's not dissimulated at all. Oh, ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us. There is no straitjacket on my heart. You know, there are people in this assembly, many, because this is the temptation of the flesh, is to put a straitjacket on our affections. I don't want to get hurt. I don't like them. They're different than I am. I don't like what they do. And so we put a straitjacket on our affections at the heart level. Therefore, there aren't actions that result. You come in here and you sit. If I were to ask you by a raise of hands, who loves their brethren this morning, all your hands would fly up. Every one of you join the church and promise this fantastic love that you're going to have for everyone, but you have a straitjacket on your affections. There isn't any real passion there. There isn't any real bowels there. And so the apostle is going after the Corinthian church, and I'm going after you. 2 Corinthians 6.12 Ye are not straightened in us. I don't have a straitjacket. We, my fellow laborers, don't have a straitjacket toward you. But ye are straightened in your own bowels. You have held back your affection. Well, I'm going to love my family. Well, you're as good as a junkyard dog. You're as good as the worshipers of Baal. I love my family. So does every ridiculous rat and mouse in this world. That isn't the emphasis of God's word. 
That's like loving yourself when you love your family. You want to rip the straitjacket off and love those outside your family. You know, all you want to do is love those that you're comfortable with. You only want to love those that you're convenient toward. You want to reach outside and way beyond that restrictive limit that you put on it. And it's called here, straightening your bowels. Ye are straightening your own bowels toward us. We're not restricted toward you. You're restricted toward us. Does everybody hear me? Let your love be without dissimulation. Don't fake it. Don't have hypocrisy. Get outside yourself and, and, and build up from inside an enlargement, an enlarged heart toward others by choosing to have an affection for them, as verse 10 is going to tell us specifically. But the poor apostle, if there should have ever been a man in the New Testament loved, it should have been the apostle Paul. And here this church did not love him. Ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Since I'm loving you, why can't you love me back? Give me a recompense. Our mouth is open to you. Our heart is enlarged. We're not restricted. Why are you restricted to us? Will you rip the straitjacket off? Right. I don't want to get hurt. I'm just not comfortable. I'm just a person that likes to, to stay to himself. Well, then you're not a Christian or you're a terrible Christian. Boy, if the Lord Jesus Christ had said that about you in the Garden of Gethsemane when the Father didn't give him another way out of the crucifixion of the cross, he'd have simply walked out of there and said, I'm just not comfortable with doing that. The entire Bible is about taking dynamite to your comfort zone. Your comfort zone is nothing but an indication and a confession on your part that you're infantile. That you're afraid to get up in front of the class and tell them your name and where you live in the first grade. And we want to get over that. We need to blow it away. Let your love be without dissimulation. Let's not say that we love the brethren. Let's not confess it when we join our church. But let's put it into action. And I hope that these three verses right here appeal to you by the apostle trying to move the Corinthians so that they would enlarge their hearts and that they would not be straightened in their own bowels toward him. And we ought to be that way toward everyone else in here. We are in a war. And we want to seek the upright. If you're just this morning, then you're going to get out of your comfort zone. You're going to get out of your pew. You're going to get away from your family. You're going to get away from your little buddies that are your age in this church. And you're going to go after others. It makes me sick when I see any of those. It is so contrary to our religion. It is so contrary to Jesus Christ. If the Lord Jesus Christ had stuck with his own, he would have only saved Jews. But he saved us Gentiles. The Apostle Paul, if he'd have stuck with his own, he would have only saved his family. But he went far and abroad. He never had a home. He never had a wife. He went after us Gentiles. And we want to reach out. And it's a small group to reach out to. And we want to love everyone else that is in here. Let your love be without dissimulation. Let's have no hypocrisy. Let's not pretend that we love. Let's show it from the heart. By taking, ripping off the straitjacket, by enlarging our heart, and then doing things for others. Going after them. Proverbs 29.10 was going after them. He seeks his soul. Lord, help us to do that. Amen. Real love is fervent and passionate. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. 1 Peter 1.22, it's passionate. 
First Peter 1.22 Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned. See, there's unfeigned love again. It is so easy to say that you love someone and then not perform as the Bible describes how you ought to perform for loving that particular object. In the middle of 1 Peter 1.22, unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Now, whenever I find one of these one another combinations in the Bible, it's a very unique and it's a very wonderful combination of pronouns. And it's precious. One another means you are one soul. You are one Christian. You are one church member. You are supposed to love every other church member. One, another. Another is a singular pronoun for someone other than yourself. And it's one, another toward the whole church. Remember, I've explained to you before that in a church where there's only about 80 members, there's 5,000 combinations of two people. It's a a huge number. And then, if they're both loving back and forth the way they're supposed to, it's not called a combination. In mathematics, it's called a permutation. And then there's 10,000. And if we add in some visitors, and if we add in some children that may not be members with us yet, we're up to 15,000, though there might be a church with only 80 members. It's huge. But it all starts with one another. And I love these combinations, and this combination is throughout the New Testament because it's what you, one church member, owes every other church member considered one at a time. One another. So what does it say here? See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Have you ripped off the straitjacket and you have you enlarged your heart toward every other single member of this church? Do you show it? This has nothing to do with your spouse. Church is not a date. Whenever I see you hanging around your spouses, I know what you're telling the whole church. Your comfort zone is around the little person you chose to marry, and you can't get outside it. You are such you are in such a tight straitjacket, you can't get away from the person where you're comfortable. Get away from them. There's 168 hours in a week. I doubt if the other 164, you're showing as much love as you're pretending to show us here that you have for your spouse. You want us to believe that you have a loving marriage at home? Show us some real love. Show us that Jesus Christ has changed your heart by getting you out of your comfort zone to go after someone else and fulfill all these one another places in the Bible. I'm not your enemy. I'm the ambassador of the high king of heaven, and this is what he expects, and this is what he did for every single one of us, because our names were inscribed in the palms of his hands, and our names were put in the book of life of the lamb slain, and he died for every single one of us, because it says he shall see of his seed. Every single one, every single child in here. This is the word of God to us. Oh, there's so much more that could be said. Let's come back to Romans chapter 12. I don't want to... Romans chapter 12. Lord, have mercy and make up what we cannot cover today. Real love is fervent. Did you see that there? See that you love one another, one another, fervently. Fervently. Hot. Flaming. Passionate. Eager. Eager. Loving to please. Loving to get out of your comfort zone. 
willing to chase someone down and go after them. You know, then real love is always going to have performance attached to it. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, he told the Corinthians, he said, look at what they of Macedonia have done. Corinth was in Achaia, the southern province of Greece, if you were to divide it into just two provinces. The northern province was Macedonia. There was the church of the Philippians at the city of Philippi, the father of Alexander the Great. And so the apostle starts off 2 Corinthians chapter 8 by saying, look at what the Philippians have given out of their poverty. They're a poor church up there in Macedonia. You're a rich church down here in Achaia. Why don't you give us a performance? I'm not going to even turn you there. If you were to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the first half of it is about a performance of your love. Because love has to perform. It's not in words. It's not in feelings. Though we want to generate those feelings by ripping off a straitjacket and enlarging our heart and having a fervent love flowing out of our heart because God has loved us and Christ has shown us how to love others. And those that God has put in this church, God has chosen for us to love. He has chosen the very perfect objects for your love. He knows exactly what combination of personalities he's put in this church and he has given us an alphabetical soup. Because there are so many differences in this church, you can pick out from A to Z in here. And do you know why you can pick out from A to Z in here? Because it's a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's going to test your love if you, being a C, can love an E, or a D, or a P, or a V. In your alphabet soup that we have here called our church. Because He's put all these different parts of us together. Because that's what God does. But it's a performance. John says that if our bowels of compassion are moved toward another, it should produce cash. I love it how he describes it. It should produce some real stuff. You know, we've got to reach for our wallet. We've got to embrace them. Because if you love somebody, you want to hug them. So we embrace, and we should embrace more. And if you've let our embracing slip, or if I've let our embracing slip, let's embrace again. Because when you love somebody, you embrace them. But let's not just embrace them. When we embrace them, slip something into their pocket. Let's love one another the way the Bible describes, especially when they're in need. James, when he was comparing faith, he said, what good is faith? You know, unless you have works attached to that faith. Faith is like saying, my brother, I'm sorry that you have these needs. Go be ye warmed and filled. But you don't give them anything to warm them and fill them. It's just ridiculous. It's just just as ridiculous as saying, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's no change in your life. James ridiculed faith by showing feigned love. Let love be without dissimulation. Let's go to the next clause in Romans chapter 12. We won't have to spend as much time maybe in verse 10 because of what we just did in the first part of verse 9. Let love be without dissimulation. Do you truly love? This is the measure of our religion. God has loved us. God has shown us how to love. God has commanded us to love. God has given us the ability to love. God has given us the spirit to love. God has taught us in the inner man to love. And we need to put that new man on and work it out. And get out of our comfort zone and go love one another. I have already this day mentioned a Catholic assembly where you can just go and watch a charade. It's like... It's like the world going to a movie. They're just sitting in a movie theater and they're watching something take place on a stage. You know, he walks around, they swing incense and they pick the Bible up and they kiss its pages and they go through all these motions that are all written down for them so that every church is like another church. 
But you don't do anything. You know, we want to come in here, and we do, but we can do better. We can do much better, and some of you can make a total change in your lives by getting away from your family and embracing the other members of this church and seeking the souls of the upright. Because we're in a war. Let your love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. We come to the next clause. You know, Romans chapter 12 is one of those special places in the Bible where the apostle, it's almost like he's running out of ink or running out of time, is just going to rip down a whole bunch of short phrases. They're concise, they use power words, and they blast us on different points of the Christian life. He doesn't elaborate on them, he just hits us. Abhor that which is evil. You know, I guess he could have said, abhor sin. But instead, he used four or five words. Abhor that which is evil. But look at the power word that he chose to use. When you abhor something, you regard it with horror. Extreme repugnance or disgust. To hate it utterly. To loathe it and to abominate it. That's, that's the Oxford English Dictionary people getting worked up about the word abhor. They typically don't use words like that over there. You know, you bloody fellow you, let's have a cup of tea. To regard with horror, extreme repugnance or disgust, to hate utterly, to loathe it, to abominate it, is the definition of the English word abhor. Abhor that which is evil. Hate is good. And so is abhor, and so is abominate, despise, detest, and loathe when it comes to evil and to sin. Canada and America now have hate crimes, which is an insane concept, and it makes hatred look bad. But hatred is good when it's against something bad. You know, when you hate something bad, hatred is good. When you loathe something bad, that's a good thing. And they shouldn't be making all hate bad. Robert Schuller, Joel Osteen, and some of these other preachers in America would never use the four-letter word hate. But the Bible's filled with it. And here we're told abhor, which means hate. It means hate utterly. Not just a little bit. The perilous times produce effeminate doves that only fiercely hate one thing. Do you know what it is? Right, righteous people. Second Timothy chapter three. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. Oh yeah, they know all about loving themselves, and they shall be despisers of them that are good. The bloodthirsty hate the upright. Second Timothy chapter three is not talking about atheists. Second Timothy chapter three is talking about Christians. They are despisers of them that are good. Oh, they, you know, they talk about the love of Jesus, but boy, you take a stand and you start condemning some of the popular sins of our generation and they'll hate you for it, even though they call themselves Christians in love with Jesus. These Christian perverts will talk about love ad nauseum while referencing Jesus in total ignorance of what he was all about, as found in the pages of Scripture. God hates sin. God hates the sinners that commit sin. And God hates the world that is their home and their base of operations. You say, well, then how can God love anyone? Because he chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began, so that in the view and mind and heart of Almighty God, we are in eternal union with the Lord Jesus Christ and we are not sinners. That's how God set His love on us. Amen. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that everyone here knows Psalm 5.5 5, that says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Why isn't that preached? Why doesn't anybody want to deal with that text? 
Why don't they like it? I love it. Because that means that His love for me and His love for you is something special. If He loves everyone and most of the people that He loves He sends to hell, what is special about that love? Psalm 5.5 The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 11 and verse 5 The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Psalm 10 and verse 3, For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. That's what the Bible says. And so I believe it. God hates sin, sinners that commit sin, and the world. How, why, how does He love us? Because He chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began, and He predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself. So we are His children by a predest- an act of predestination in eternity, and that's why He chastens us and doesn't chasten the others. Are you trying to tell me that in Hebrews chapter 12, when it says he chastens everyone that he loves, that he loves those he doesn't chasten? No, we know better than that. They're bastards and not sons, and he doesn't love the bastards. Do you abhor evil? Do you hate, abominate, and loathe abortion, adultery? You say, I sure do. I hate those two sins. How about backbiting? Casual sex? I sure do. I hate fornication. How about complaining? Let's get them all on the list. How about covetousness? How about despising government? Do you like making jokes or listening to jokes? If you listen to a joke about President Obama, you despise government and you're like a rabid dog, and God says you ought to be taken out back and shot. You say, where is that in the Bible? Jude chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. That's where it's at. You're mad. You have rabies. Divorce. Drunkenness, foolish talking, immodesty, jesting, labor unions, lying, mocking parents, purloining. You say, I don't know what it is, then you need to look it up, don't you? Because it's in the Bible. Same-sex marriages, revenge, self-esteem, self-love. Do you hate self-esteem and self-love as much as you do sodomy? Before God, I can say I hate all three equally because they're all equally insane and from the pit of hell. I hate them all. And I want to hate them more. And I want to help you hate them. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. If you love God, you're going to hate the things He hates. There's a list given in Proverbs chapter 6 where there's seven things given that He hates. If you love God, you're going to hate sin in the world for they are enemies. If you love God's law, you're going to hate everything His law condemns. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right and I hate every false way including those ways that I'm tempted to myself. I hate them. This is, this is to abhor evil. Abhor! The people of God should abhor it because the Lord does. Right. Do you know how much the Lord abhors evil? One transgression by our first parents in the Garden of Eden, one transgression cost a hundred billion their eternal destiny. One transgression. Sin caused the God of heaven to bruise His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to forsake Him when He was on the cross when He needed His help the most. Sin. If you want to see the sinfulness of sin and the terribleness of sin, look at Calvary. If you want to see the terribleness of sin, look at Eden. If you want to see the terribleness of sin, look at the flood. If you want to see the terribleness of sin, look at the great day of judgment. I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. 
Abhor that which is evil. If you love God and righteousness, you will hate the work of them that turn aside. Psalm 101 and verse 3. By its close position to cleave to that which is good, we understand this is hatred that results in rejection. Romans chapter 12, are you there? Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Those are power words. Chosen by the Holy Spirit. And I love every one of them. Look at his flow. Love, abhor, cleave. Cleave to that which is good. Cleave means to stick fast or to adhere to something. You know, we think of a meat cleaver and we think of cutting something in half. But in our Bibles, to cleave is to be glued to something. By, as by a glutinous surface. You know where gluten came from? It's glue. We're to be glued to something. We, we cling to it. We hold fast to it. We attach ourselves to it. We're devoted to it. We're faithful to it. That's what it means to cleave because the Bible says Adam cleaved unto his wife and they twain were one flesh. That's pretty close, isn't it? When two bodies become one body. Well, that's what it means to cleave and we're to cleave to that which is good. I love these words here. They're power words. They're wonderful words. Look at what Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13 tells us. And they go together. And the Holy Spirit, the one author of this book, wrote Proverbs and wrote Romans and wrote First Peter. Right. And wrote Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Verse 12. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good. Keep thy tongue from evil. This is verse 13 of Psalm 34. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Because you abhor that which is evil and you're cleaving to that which is good. This is the religion of the Bible. We, We want to hate everything that's bad. We want to hate evil. We want to hate sin. We want to hate iniquity. We want to love righteousness. Love truth. Love wisdom. Love goodness. Verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And see, that verse 14 is answering the question of verse 12. If you want to have a good life and you want to see many days and you want your life to be good and God's blessing and favor upon it, then verse 13 tells you to guard your mouth and what you say. And verse 14 tells you what you need to despise and what you need to love and pursue after. You need to despise. To abhor that which is evil and cleave to that which is good. Look at Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. They're at the end of the major prophets and a few more past it. Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5 and verse 14. Seek good and not evil that ye may live. If you want to live... If you want to live the good life, if you want to live under God's favor, if you want to walk with God, seek good and not evil that ye may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, shall be with you as ye have spoken. Amos 5.14. Now verse 15. Hate the evil and love the good and establish judgment in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious unto the remnant of Joseph. You know, this is a prophet telling them about the terrible destruction that's going to come upon them, but he tells them if they'll hate the evil and love the good, there just might be yet mercy with the Lord. And so we are, we're in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, and we've been told to abhor that which is evil and to cleave to that which is good. What is good? 
to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6.8 is one of the places we could go. And we could go to many other places as well. It's looking into the perfect law of liberty in James chapter 1 and seeing every blemish in our life that is evil and hating blemishes. And pinching that zit right off your life and getting rid of it. Because you're looking into the perfect law of liberty, the mirror of God's Word, and finding everything that is not in match with Scripture and getting rid of it and changing your life by abhorring that which is evil and cleaving to that which is good. Let's come to Romans 12.10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love is the first clause of verse 10 and the fourth clause of this morning. When you're kind, you have a gentle, sympathetic, or benevolent nature. You're ready to assist, to show consideration for. You're generous, you're liberal, you're courteous, you're loving and you're fond, you're affectionate toward another person. And it says, be kindly affectioned. So it's kind of, it's got two words here that overlap each other. Because to be kind is to be affectionate. And to be affectionate is to be kind. Because affection is good disposition towards another person, goodwill, kind feeling, love, fondness. See, there's synonyms that define both words and the apostles just pouring it on. Right. Be kindly affectioned one to another. You just want to think of something good you, to do for somebody. You know, to wait till somebody's in need and then to show up, you're worthless. Come on. The rest of us will take care of it. Just forget about it. You don't know anything about love. Why, why would you wait until there's a need? Is that how you treat your wife? Is that how you treat your kids? You wait until they have a need, then you show up? Or do you go after them, and you want to show them some kindness? It says to be kindly affectioned, one to another with brotherly love. Now, verse 10 is pretty hard. And you can be thankful that the clock is beating me right now. But you're not done yet. In this 10th verse, I want you to notice that there are two occurrences of the one another combination right. in one verse. Because this is an individual thing. We can't do it as a church. We have to do it as individuals because it's one toward another. They're in the first clause one to another in the first clause. In the second clause, it's one another. It's something you have to do. You. It's something I have to do. I. Singular pronouns. You. I have to do this to every other church member. One to another. Another is a singular pronoun. I know I've already said this, but if you really want to get excited about a study, go home and on the little magnifying glass on our website at the top of the toolbar, at the top toolbar, Open up that search box and type in one another and you're going to get a sermon outline with all the occurrences of one another in the Bible and it's quite an exercise to look through it and realize that is what I owe. You cannot hide behind anyone else. You cannot hide behind some member of your family that might be more loving than you. You must step out. You must get out of your comfort zone. You must do it. You must grow some legs in order to take you. You must grow some hands to embrace them. You need to rip off your straitjacket. You need to enlarge your heart. Be kindly affectioned one to another in brotherly love. Brotherly love is an instinctive desire to defend the honor of any, any brother that you have. A brother is born for adversity. There may be a friend that loveth closer than a brother, but I want you to understand what that sentence is saying. 
There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Why is that description of a friend using brotherly love? Because that is not ordinarily the case. Ordinarily, brothers are going to stick together and be the best of friends. Brothers will fight for each other. It's called the clans. You know, a clan will fight. Even if they disagree, if you pick on my brother, you're going to have to deal with me. And that is, that's brotherly love. And it's used throughout the Bible. If you have had a brother and you didn't have much love toward that brother, don't let your sin corrupt and pervert the Word of God. In the Word of God, brothers stuck together. When Abner killed Asahel, did it affect Joab at all? Did Joab remember it for a while? Okay. It's brotherly love. Look at this. All I want to do is exhort you today. Brethren, can you get out of your comfort zone? Do you? People tell me that Romans is my favorite book. I love the book of Romans. Do you love the book of Romans? Then show some love by letting the book of Romans tell you. You say, well, I prefer the first 11 chapters. That's because you may not be a Christian. The devil believes all the first 11 chapters. Show me some love. Show me the work of grace in your heart. Show me that you're a vessel of honor. Show me that God has regenerated you. Show me that you are no longer a servant of sin. Because you'll reach out and be kindly affectioned one to another. Kindness. Who can you think of showing some kindness to today? Oh, don't think about tomorrow. Today. Who can you do something kind for today? If you want help, come and see me. Maybe your ideas and my ideas will get us each other provoked. Today, who can you do something kind for? What if you seek the soul of the just and encourage them? You know, one's going to be flying back to St. Louis. One has a death in the family. A family's making a trip to some state way up there near Canada and the Arctic Circle. There's people traveling. There's people going to school. There's visitors. Be kindly affectioned. One to another. I love the Word of God. It is is so short, but that is packed. That is packed. Kindly affectioned. One to another means it's an individual responsibility. With brotherly love is describing what kind of love it ought to be. And there's only one word there to tell us what mood this clause is. Do you see how power-packed the phrase is? It's just all jam-packed full of words. Of what we're, and then there's one little tiny word telling us, this is what you should do. Making it imperative. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. We are a loving church. We're a loving church. I don't think I should have preached this text. We should have just moved right on to not slothful in business. Well, we work pretty hard at that too. Maybe I should just move down to verse 12. Rejoicing in hope. We get excited about the resurrection in heaven. Maybe I should have just moved on to verse 13. Distributing to the necessity. Yeah, we do that. Could we be better? Amen. Could we be a lot better? Amen. Could you be better? Amen. That was a little lower than the first amen, but not bad. I love these words. This is what the doctrine of the first 11 chapters should result in. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. What can we do today to go after someone that we're not used to going after? Remember, our church is a scattergram. It's a great big circle 
and it's got dots all over it for the different church members. You, for your scattergram, are in the middle. And you need to look at that scattergram and see where these dots are on the outside because you're in the middle. And these dots on the outside, according to the Word of God, your one another duties, you're supposed to go out there and get that member and pull it in closer to you so that this church is compacted, 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 compacted by that which every joint supplies and that which is contributed by every part. So who is on the outside of your scattergram? Go after them today. Go get one of them. Go get one of them. Hug them. Embrace them. Do something for them. And compact this church together. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. Brotherly love is measured by forbearing and forgiving, costing you your pride and revenge. All love costs. But it results in you getting the great reward. All love costs. You know, when you look at the Bible... One of the best measures of love is to forbear and forgive others for offending you. You and your smug self-righteousness. That's why you get offended, because you're smug and you're self-righteous. Ignore what people do. They can't help it, just like you can't help being twice as bad as they are. And if there's someone in the church that you think is worse than you are, bring them to me. I'll take all three of us to lunch, and I'll show you that you're worse than they are. Anyone in this church. Pick anyone in this church, buy anyone in this church, and I'll show you your faults. Because we all have them. How can you ignore yours and see so well to spot others? So we forbear and we forgive each other, and it costs us our pride and our revenge. It's measured by giving costs that cost you in your wallet. By doing something for them that costs you money. It's measured by long-suffering and patience when other people keep on irritating you, even after they may have apologized for something. It's measured by initiative. Real love shows initiative. You don't wait until someone has a need and the pastor has to write a church update and say, you know, is there anybody going to do this? We should have already done it. You should already be planning to do it on your own initiative. We don't want to wait till some, somebody prompts us to do something. We want to do it on our own. It's measured by spirituality because real love seeks godliness and wisdom for its objects. It's measured by selflessness, needing nothing in return. It's measured by liberality because you're always generous. This is real love. And the Bible describes and defines and defends and, and proves all of these different points. Real love is the selfless desire for the spiritual and personal welfare of another person. It does whatever is necessary to help another person grow in grace to please God and men more perfectly. That is real love. It has nothing to do with what you get out of a relationship. It has everything to do with what you give in a relationship to make another person better in the sight of God and the sight of other men. In honor, preferring one another. In honor, preferring one another. This is another, one another duty. Honor is high respect, esteem, or reverence, or an exalted worth or rank. It's deferential admiration or approbation, which means to approve of another person. Honor is to exalt them up and make them special and make them high. And how high should you make them? Well, this verse tells you in honor, preferring one another. That means higher than you. Because you prefer them to you. What a sacrificial system of religion. What a wonderful system of religion. In meditating on these verses, 
in studying these verses and looking up cross-references for these verses and writing out definitions of these words, all, all I was just struck with was if a family, if a church, if a nation ever conducted itself like verse 10 describes, the unbelievable benefits and protection that would flow to that particular body. Unbelievable. Who lives like this? You know, you want the honor. You want the glory. You want to be important. You want the attention. You want to be esteemed. You think you're special. Let's make everyone else special. Who is more important in this church body than you? Who? Everyone. Because you're last. In honor, preferring one another. One at a time. Which means you should be able to take a church directory, look in that, in that list for what you consider to be the least comely or the uncomely member and realize they are better than you are. They are more important than you are. They should be exalted above you. And what are you going to do to put them up over you? In honor, preferring one another. Abraham's a wonderful example of it. How did, Ab- how did Abraham in honor prefer one another? Just give me a three-letter word. Lot. Remember Abraham? Come here, Lot. <clears throat> that little nephew that was a nothing in comparison to Abraham. He was a nothing in comparison to Abraham. He said, Lot, we're too big. You know, my flocks and your flocks, my herds and your herds are too big for the land. You pick wherever you want to go. If you go to the, to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go left, I'll go right. Go for it. Abraham should have told that little pup where to park his junk. He didn't. Abraham was the man that walked with God. Abraham was the man that was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham was the father of the faithful. Abraham was the friend of God. Lot was nothing. But look what Lot did. I mean, look what Abraham did for Lot. Isn't that wonderful? What a wonderful Bible illustration of in honor preferring one another. We don't want to be interested in self-glory. Look at Philippians. Oh, we'll come to that in the second service. Don't worry about it. Don't turn to Philippians. Stay right here at Romans chapter 12. This inspired clause regarding one another rebukes against any selfishness and exhorts us to selflessness. Since it's preference for others, then they always get the benefit of the doubt and you do not. Do you understand that? If you're in honor preferring one another, you always give the other person the benefit of the doubt and you don't give yourself the benefit of the doubt. If there comes up a little bit of a conflict, then you are willing to say to them, I'm sorry, and you don't want an I'm sorry from them. I'm not talking about authority. I am talking about interpersonal relationships. You give them the benefit of the doubt. If they think I hurt them, and I know I didn't, I'm sorry for hurting you. You say, well, if I did that, there wouldn't be any fight. Thank you. We're making progress this morning. Your comfort or convenience is quite irrelevant since their comfort and convenience is higher. I don't want to interrupt my schedule for them. Why? They're more important than you are. Well, I have my little plans for tonight. I hope the Lord's got other plans when you stand before Him and He forgets about heaven. If you want to be that wicked to think about your little plans for tonight, remember, in honor preferring one another, in honor preferring one another, meaning the other person is always more important. Their comfort is more important than your comfort. Their convenience is more important than your convenience. If you have spending money, then others should get some of it. 
since they're more important than you are. You love spending your extra money? Why don't you give it to someone else so that they can spend it? They're more important than you are. It's amazing how self-righteous smugness sees others' faults, but it's fully oblivious to their own. Every one of us have faults. Look past another person's faults. They're looking past yours because they're coming to this church even though you're a member of it. And it disgusts them. Every single one of you. Your attendance for church is much more for their benefit than for your benefit. You say, well, I don't think I'd miss anything if I miss a church service. That says a whole lot about you right there. But when you miss a church service, you're defrauding the other members of this church, including the children. You're defrauding them. Because they're wondering where you are. Why you're playing when you should be at church. If you don't have a good reason. It means you forgive them whether they ask for it or not, and you volunteer apology without their asking. Guys, mark any girl off for marriage, and girls, mark any guy off for marriage, if in any setting they want their way. If in any setting they have an opinion that is other than whatever the group wants to do, I want to do, mark them off. You do not want to be married to them. They are selfish. You want to find someone that is selfless. And when you find someone that is selfless, they're going to love you for the rest of your life. So whenever there's a group setting and they come up with an opinion, blow them off. They are not worth having and they are not ever worth being married. Let them live their lives in singlehood, singleness. Guys, you should mark girls off, and girls, you should mark guys off for marriage if in any setting they avoid participating. If there's a group together, and the group, after talking among themselves, decides upon some course of action, and some little girl goes to the sideline and sits it out, mark her off, do not get near her. She is not worth marrying. Her selfishness is overwhelming her because she didn't get her way. She's pouting. It doesn't matter what she's saying or doing. She's pouting. If it's a guy that doesn't want to participate, tosses his head, walks away, and says, I don't want to do this, he's proving that he's selfish. You don't want to have anything to do with him. He's never met the Lord Jesus Christ, and he doesn't know the Christian religion. Right. Just a little bit of practical advice. Brethren, in honor, preferring one another. Everyone in this church is more important than you are. You are the least important. You say, well, if I'm the least important and someone else is the least important to you, you are the least important. Who can you prefer today? Who can you honor today by making more important than yourself? This is the word of the Lord to us. You know, we love Romans chapter 5 about the doctrine of representation. We love Romans chapter 9 about the doctrine of election. We love Romans chapter 11 because it has some unconverted elect there for us. But we come to Romans chapter 12. Now, how much do you love the epistle to the Romans? Let love be without dissimulation. Let's have no pretenses, hypocrisy in our love. Let's abhor that which is evil in every part of our lives. Let's cleave to that which is good. Let's embrace it and hold fast to it. Let's be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. There's a one, another duty in honor preferring one another. Get out of your comfort zone today. Go after someone today. Seek the soul of the upright man. Let's encourage one another to go fight our battles. We all have battles. We have temptations. We have things that discourage us. We ought to be able to come in here and know that the whole body cares for us. But when you come to this church, you don't come to get loved. When you come to this church, you come to give love. You don't come to this church to get served. 
though we hope that's the result, you come to this church to serve because that's what the Bible teaches and that's what all of us agreed to when we joined this church. Amen. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.